Wonderful. Thank you. Please take your seats. And uh, if you have your Bibles open uh, to that part in Luke's Gospel, that'll help enormously um, as we go through uh, this uh, uh, next and last part of Luke's Gospel together as we uh, uh, draw to a close this part of Jesus' teaching um, uh, this summer before we turn to tackling Genesis 1-4 to and 1 Timothy uh, next term. And I'm looking forward to going through that uh, all with you. Um, but we have these last 10 verses to navigate um, before we get there. And again, we've got quite a hard-hitting passage this morning, don't we? It's one much like last week that is uncompromising, stark, slightly uncomfortable. Uh, not only that, it's a section of teaching that contains one of the more curious things Jesus says about faith and what we can do with it. And if that wasn't enough, it ends off with this sort of difficult-to-understand parable on the face of it. So what's going on? Well, as ever, uh, to get to the punch of today's passage, we have to remember the context of where we are in Luke and what Jesus has said uh, so far. So remember, uh, from last week, our context is the question that is asked right at the beginning of this mini-section back in chapter 13, the question asked of Jesus, um, will those who are saved be few? In other words, who is saved? What, what, does, what does being a saved person look like? And in fact, I didn't mention this last week, that, that question is very similar to another question that was asked of Jesus a few chapters before in chapter 10. And, and that's the much bigger section of Luke that chapters 13 to 17 uh, sits in. Just head back to chapter 9 for me for a moment. I, I, I hope this framework will help as we come to today's passage. And if you cast your minds back, I think several years now, when we were in chapter 9, we hit one of the most important section markers in Luke's gospel, probably one of the most important verses in Luke's gospel to tell us where we are, a marker that affects everything in Luke from that point on, including our passage this morning. And that section marker is found in verse 51, chapter 9, verse 51. And it reads this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. You remember that? Everything we read from that moment is Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure, for his triumphal entry to Jerusalem for his death on the cross. And the very first question asked after his first set of teaching, once he set his face towards Jerusalem, it's found in chapter 10, verse 25, over the page. Read that with me. After having sent out the 72 into the mission field, a sign of what Jesus' kingdom will look like as many people begin to hear Jesus' good news and repent. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question, isn't it? And it's pretty much the same question in chapter 13, who will be saved? Though this question in chapter 9 has been asked like a Pharisee and not someone who really wants to know. He's asking it in order to justify himself, verse 29 of chapter 10. That, that's what the Pharisees like to do. Jesus said that last week. This lawyer wants to show that he's got eternal life sorted. And so what does Jesus say to this question? Well, verse 26, he responds with a question of his own. Jesus says to the lawyer, well, what is written in the law? How, how do you read it? You tell me, in other words. And the lawyer responds with the perfect answer from Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you will love each other as you love yourself. And Jesus says, yep, that's it. Do that and you will receive eternal life. It's not complicated, says Jesus. Do all these things, keep the law with all your strength, Love the Lord your God with all your soul, your heart, your mind. You will live. Love others to the very end of yourself. Eternity is yours. And from that point on, Jesus tackles everything that people throw at him. Like in verse 29, note, who, who try to wriggle out of the law and try to just them, justify themselves. Like this lawyer, he suddenly realized that he hasn't loved people as much as he loves himself. He hasn't loved God with everything he has. And so he wants to see if there's a clause 
in the law to help him escape from the high demands that are placed on him. And so he actually asked Jesus, just to confirm, (laughs) who do I need to love? And Jesus says, well, you don't get to pick and choose who you love. And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan in inviting the lawyer to contemplate loving someone who was dirty and disgusting in his eyes. Love, love, love those kinds of people and you'll inherit eternal life. Surely you don't mean that kind of person, Jesus. You see, I don't have to love them. Yes, says Jesus. I mean everyone, even the people you despise. That's what the law demands. That's in answer to your question. That's what we saw last week, wasn't it? Chapter 16. Neither do you get to pick and choose which part of my law you want to keep, he says to the Pharisees, who, like the lawyer in chapter 10, seek to justify themselves, if you remember, by fudging the law, allowing them to sin flagrantly and serve money rather than God. You don't really mean that I can't serve both God and money, Jesus. Surely, yes, yes, I really mean that, says Jesus. You cannot do it. You you cannot enter my eternity if if, if you're serving both those masters. You're, You're not a saved person. In order to inherit eternal life, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you love each other as you love yourself. Love each other as if they were the most important people to you. Put them first at your banquets, chapter 14. Put the loss at the forefronts of your mind, chapter 15. Don't hold on to wealth and status and religion, chapter 16. Love me more than anything. Love others more than you. And today's passage? Well, Jesus, you can't really mean... (laughs) that if I cause someone to sin, that I should have a millstone hung around my neck and be thrown into the sea. Well, yes, says Jesus. Actually, I I do really mean that. Causing someone to fall away from me on account of your sin and unfaithfulness, it is better that you be removed. Causing people to sin and fall away is the way that you lose eternity. There's no life at the bottom of the sea. The law is uncompromising. It is a staggeringly high bar to get into eternity, but the standards of the law have never changed. And Jesus, since chapter 10, has never wavered from saying that. In fact, the New Testament has never wavered from saying that. Faith without works is dead, says James. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will, the law of my Father, says Jesus in Matthew. People will know that you are my disciples, inheritors of eternity, by your love for one another, says Jesus in John. To be saved, to enter eternal life, in order that you don't have metaphorical millstones hung around your necks and tossed into Davy Jones' locker, in other words, you must keep the law. And now here in chapter 17, the same thing is said. Nothing has changed. My standards are just as high for those who are saved. Causing others to sin. And verse 4, having to forgive each other endlessly without any recourse, time and time and time again, is the way in which you love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the way in which you love each other. And it really matters that you love God and you love each other. That brings us to point one. For those who are saved and inherit eternal life are those who cause no offense to others. Read with me from verse one again. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. I'm grateful to another preacher for this illustration. I'm going to use it because it's something that happens in our home all the time. And that is the infernal game that Toby plays all the time, the game of would you rather. And uh, they are the most hilariously difficult things to have to choose between. I don't know if you've ever played it. For example, he came home from school one day and uh, where these things I know are being concocted, and he announced, Dad, 
would you rather only have hands or only have feet? Which, which is a, a ludicrous thing to think about, but actually it's quite hard to work out which one I would prefer, and so we have another argument about it. One of my personal favourites, would you rather only eat custard or only live in custard? I was like, oh, okay. Or, or genuinely more difficult, would you rather only ever be outside or only ever be inside? I was like, huh. And, and it makes you think, that the conversations off the back of them are hilarious, and, and I, we can't work them out. Here's a would you rather from Jesus. It's not a difficult one to choose, but the stakes are enormously high. Would you rather, says Jesus, have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea, or love my people so much that you never cause them to sin and forgive them endlessly? Well, obviously, you'd want to choose the latter, wouldn't you? Being thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck, it's an awful thing to choose. It's the most graphic thing that Jesus could have chosen. It's horrific. It's not funny. God's standard to love your neighbor, seek their good, really matters to God. And causing people to fall away, that's a seriously dangerous thing. And quite often it's a sad reality, isn't it? That those who fall away from the faith or from church is because of a personal relationship issue with another Christian or a minister or an elder through harsh words or unfoolish, unguarded talk or combative pride, anger unforgiveness, all sin things, people left angry, hurting, not wanting to darken the doorstep of a church again. And also the most awful extremes in some churches, many we've seen all too horribly often, general pastoral abuse, cause of people falling away, abuse of all kinds in the church, it's anathema to God, alienating people from the good news of the kingdom. What would I rather, says Jesus to his disciples, you bulldozing your way through my people who I'm desperate to save or you to be sunk to the sea. Well, on balance, I'd, I'd much rather you be removed in order for my people to be protected for eternity. And that's where the analogy is getting at. You see, there's an eternity at play here. We've been looking at that since chapter 10. Jesus starts this entire section reminding the Pharisees of eternal judgment. And, and, and he reminded the Pharisees last week of eternal judgment. If you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, don't end up there. There's a, there's a hell to spurn, a heaven to gain, guys. Keep the law. You need to love me and love others to the end of yourself. But furthermore, as a consequence, I don't want you harming my children who are wanting to know me. And by your sin, you're putting off and driving away. That is serious. They too have a hell to spurn and a heaven to gain. It's much better removing you for this life so that you don't harm others from entering eternal life. You see, that's Jesus, would, would I rather. That's the balance with an eternal element in view. It's not ridiculous thinking on those terms that a millstone should be hung around my neck and me tossed into the sea. But note something else here. He's not talking to the Pharisees now. No, verse 1. He's now talking to the disciples. You notice that? You and me. Uh, the, 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 the normal people in the church, not the, the deliberate legalists. He's talking to us, to me, you guys, Redeemer, in regards to our sin. It's deadly serious, verse 3, that you keep watch of ourselves, myself. This is hard, hard stuff. And I stand here as a minister who sins as someone who has made, made mistakes with people. And it's really hard to preach these passages in front of you. My hope and my prayer is that I never drive you or anyone else away from the gospel or into sin where, where they don't want to know Jesus anymore. On any level. Where, where, where you never do that to each other in the church family. It, it seems almost impossible, but, but it's really important to Jesus. 
Do not, says Jesus, be people who cause offence. Those who inherit eternal life and are saved are those who do not cause offence to these little children of my flock. Something the Pharisees were, were doing, something the disciples are, are warned of. But not only that, says Jesus, if, if that wasn't hard enough, those who inherit eternal life are point to also those who do not bear the offence of others and hold it against them. Three and four, read verses three and four with me. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. A part of me thinks we get to this point and think, okay, this is the slightly easier part. People make mistakes. I'm a kind of laid-back kind of guy. I don't mind if I'm offended. Sure, I'll forgive them. But actually, this is impossibly difficult. This is really hard. Uh, Especially when we are offended. Something akin to rage lives in us when we're offended. It does in me anyway. Let's call a spade a spade. As humans, and Jesus knows this, we are a deeply offendable people. Forgiveness for when we have been genuinely slighted is very difficult. Certainly in the way Jesus expects here. Our whole culture is one of offense, isn't it? It's the the unforgivable sin to cause offense, whether deliberately or accidental. We're beginning to have laws against offense. You cannot be offended, screams the world. And if you are, then by golly, you're allowed to use every weapon in your arsenal to smite the offender, deplatform them, remove them from culture, heap abuse on them publicly, go after their children, attack their work and their success, besperch their name, tarnish any reputation of anyone associated with them, never giving up the fight, all because you have been offended. We, as a culture, are deeply offended by offence. And the irony is lost on most people by the fact that the offensive backlash to offence is often far more offensive. That is, without too much exaggeration, the way in which we are told in our secular societies to treat those who who do bad things to us. And Jesus says here, I cannot tell you how different disciples of mine need to be. Radically different. For those who inherit eternal life, you must be the radical opposite. Now, we may not be that bad as Christians or, or, or as people in this room in terms of where the world is, where we're sort of deplatforming each other and wanting to take out each other's families. But, but we do bear all those desires. Oh, that person said this to me at church last week. I never want to speak to him again. She forgot after she promised me that she was going to be there and do this thing. She didn't. I can't believe it. She needs to know how much she has hurt me. This person let me down. That person's genuinely treated me badly. I want their friends to know. I'm going to spread this amongst a few people to get them on side. We can be like that with each other. I am like that. In my absolute basic natural instincts, I am not a laid-back person when it comes to sin against me. I'm offended. My knee-jerk reaction is to turn into a ball of fury and self-righteousness. Jesus says, do not be like that. Never holding an offense of someone against you is the way that you enter eternal life. Which means, once sin has been pointed out, once that person has repented, Jesus says, seeking your forgiveness, you have to forgive fully. And when the same thing happens again, and they've repented, you have to forgive them fully again. And when the same thing happens again at two o'clock in the afternoon and they've repented, you have to forgive them fully again. And when the same thing happens again and they've repented, you have to forgive them fully again. And when the same thing happens again and they've repented, then you have to give them fully again. And when the same thing happens again and they've repented, then you have to give them fully again. And when the same thing happens again and they've repented, 
you have to forgive them fully again. That's seven times, I think. You get my point. It's, it's almost ludicrous. Jesus says you should forgive in the exact same way. Once, Jesus, fine, you're forgiven. We're, we're great at forgiving people once. Twice, okay, shame on you, don't do it again, but you're forgiven. Three times, no way. Shame on me for being abused in that kind of way. No, that's not going to happen. Do you really mean seven times, Jesus? To the same person, for the same sin, potentially, each time getting it proportionally harder each time? Yes, I do, says Jesus. In fact, he says in Matthew, you should forgive 70 times seven, meaning indefinitely, that's the point, a billion times a billion, or whatever the number is, an, an infinite number of times, all the time, every time, for every single thing. You must forgive fully, restoratively, to the end of yourself, to the loss of yourself. If there is sin and no repentance on the other party, if, if they don't want to say sorry, if they want nothing, well, that's much harder. There's no desire for recompense. Verse three is clear here that if sin is pointed out and repentance is sought, then you forgive. But, but upon repentance, despite it being the hundredth time, yes, you forgive. In other words, you not only forgive the one-off things, or the little things that offend you, you forgive the persistent offences, the major character flaws that you have to come up against in me and others, the thorns in other people's side that impale you as you interact with them. All of that must be forgiven upon repentance. Because that is how you love people better than you love yourself. That is exactly how you would love to be treated by everyone in the church family, isn't it? That's how you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And boy, does never-ending forgiveness for being genuinely hurt take all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't be like the world, says Jesus to his disciples. Be like someone who is headed for eternal life. For those who inherit eternal life and are saved are those who forgive indefinitely, never holding offense against my little ones, always forgiving, always keeping the standards of law. For those people are saved. Those who inherit eternal life are those who do not cause offence, putting people off from the gospel, and, and those who forgive to the end of themselves. And again, as I stand before you, may it be that I never push you away because of my unforgiveness. Or I give up after two times and, and never make it to seven. May we be a church that never pushes each other away because of unforgiveness. May it always be a place that comes together and loves and forgives till it hurts and never give up doing so. Forgive me if I've not really exampled that very well. I, I need to get better at it. For if we don't, and Jesus is putting it in such a way in this passage, that if we don't do these things, if we're people who cause each other to sin glibly, then we're in danger of forfeiting eternity. If we don't forgive, then we're forfeiting the right to be forgiven. And if we're looking for a way like the Pharisees to wriggle out of this teaching to make things more comfortable for us, well, there isn't one. The standard of the law never changes. Chapter 16 last week, not one word, not one dot of the Lord is going to be tweaked for you, says Jesus. My standards on marriage, living, serving, loving, forgiving, they're as high as they've always been. Love me and love each other with everything you have. Never offend, always forgive. Eternity is inherited. Now, this brings us on to the last part of this section as we tie this teaching of Jesus together. And it is difficult, and it's especially difficult because all the way through this passage, we know there's an extraordinary problem. And the problem is I just cannot promise to do this. I cannot promise to keep the law as Jesus commands and rightly expects in order for me to inherit, inherit eternal life. 
I cannot promise that my sin won't affect you in this church family or cause you to sin. I cannot promise that my actions or my reactions or my tongue will always be perfectly kept in tune to God's spirit. I cannot promise that relationships won't be broken or harmed because of the things I've done or may do in the future. I, I can't properly promise that. I need to watch myself work at it, but I cannot promise to do it perfectly. And neither can you. I cannot promise that I won't bear grudges and I won't have stabs of unforgiveness. I need to work on all of that. I just can't promise to do it perfectly. And neither can you to, 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 to forgive you indefinitely with no recourse every single time. We can't promise that with each other. We cannot promise that we can meet what God demands for those who inherit eternal life. And not only can we not promise that we'll never do it again, but we've never, ever done it. So what on earth do we do about it? And what does Jesus say to this conundrum? Because I know, having reached this part of Luke's gospel, all I have left to me, if it isn't eternal life, is the millstone. Well, this is where we come to the most important part of this whole section of teaching since chapter 10. And that is looking at the reaction of the disciples to this teaching, the way that Jesus deals with them as he tells them this final parable. Finally, point three, those who inherit eternal life are those who recognize their failure, their weak faith, their unworthy works of service, and put their trust in Jesus, the perfect law keeper. You see, the reaction of discomfort and disbelief at this, dare I say panic from the disciples, is exactly what Jesus is looking for. And this is exactly the reactions that the disciples give. Read with me verses 5 to 6. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, well, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. What's the disciples' reaction to hearing this? Help me. <laughs> Jesus, we can't do that. We've never been able to do that. We've never kept God's law enough. They know it. We know it. Jesus knows it. Total panic. We're doomed. I'm so convicted of my sin. So they ask for something. They ask for an increase in faith. Increase our faith. Please help us keep the law perfectly. Please give us the tools to crack this, to be able to love you perfectly, love others as we want to be loved, never causing sin, always forgiving. It's a plea from the heart. My discipleship is so poor. I'm so convicted. I need a lot of help. And at this point, you see the major difference between the reaction of the Pharisees to the reaction of, of, of Jesus' disciples to this teaching. The reaction to the Pharisees and the law is to justify themselves. But we do keep the law, Jesus. We are perfect regardless of what you say, Jesus. They ridiculed him to his face last week. We will treat the law how we like, as we're so great, and you will let us into eternity. <laughs> the reaction of the disciples to the same uncompromising teaching of Jesus? Help me. Do something, anything. There, there is no way. I can't get into eternity like this. Jesus says to the Pharisees, keep the law perfectly, and they say, we will. And we have been, and we are. Don't you worry about that, Jesus. We've got it covered. We don't need your help. Jesus says to the disciples, keep the law perfectly. And the true disciple says, I can't help, I'm doomed. I'm desperate, I don't have enough faith. See the difference? Pharisees, total defiance, legalism. The true disciple, total recognition of abject failure. Help. And that's the reaction that Jesus is looking for, for those who want to inherit eternal life. And that's really important for that reaction. Once that reaction has been given to the unbendable truths of the law, how you enter eternity, once the... True disciple has been convicted of sin, so then Jesus gives some of the most remarkable words of salvation grace. Increase your faith, says Jesus. It's not about that. 
If you had the tiniest amount of faith in me, the smallest, most insignificant amount of faith, no bigger than a mustard seed on the end of your pinky, which you can't even see, then that is enough to produce the most incredible outcomes. You could, you could uproot a tree and plant it in the ocean. In Mark's gospel, you could move mountains with it. Now, sidebar, it doesn't mean that we can move physical objects with our minds if we have a little bit of faith in the Lord Jesus. And indeed, that if you can't, then maybe you don't have any faith. I grew up reading Adrian Plass as a kid. I don't know if any of you did. He's a, a C of E minister who wrote funny books about being a Christian in the Church of England. And he gives this hilarious account of him desperately trying to practice moving a paperclip on his desk. And it ends up with him in a terrible theological panic because he can't do it. He convinced himself that he's doomed for eternity as a consequence. No, this isn't literal. No more so than the millstone is literal. It's an analogy. It's meant to convey something of, of, of a minuscule-like mustard seed that you can barely see with the naked eye leading to enormous, impossible effect. The point being, true disciples who recognize his or her sin before the law can do nothing about it and come to me for help, says Jesus, in the realization of their position in repentance and faith, however how falteringly they do that, I will take that. I will take, says Isaiah, the, the flickering, smoldering, wick-like flame of faith, your single broken reed-like faith that's barely alive, and I will do extraordinary things with it. I will do the impossible with it. I will more than uproot trees and displace mountains. I will raise you from the dead. I will usher that person into eternal life. It's an incredible thing that Jesus says here as he holds up the standard of the law in front of our lawlessness. Any amount of burgeoning faith and trust in me, recognizing that you're a sinner, hopeless under the need of the law, recognizing that Jesus is the only person that can help, recognize that he is the only one who can truly forgive for all the awful things I've done, well, that puts someone into a position of eternity. These are words of immense grace. But even more than that, says Jesus, even if you could increase your faith to incredible amounts, such that you were beginning to keep the law perfectly, such that you were actually serving the Lord with all your soul, heart, and mind, and strength, loving each other perfectly, even then it wouldn't be enough to save you and get you into eternity. <laughs> Sorry? For it's not how much good you do that will make any difference, because any good that you do do is actually already what you already owed God in the first place. And that's where this parable comes into play as we close. It's remarkable. Read with me from verse 7. Anyone who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep will say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at table. The master won't say that. Rather, will the master not say to him, oh, okay, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you can then eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you commanded, say we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. It takes a while to get our head around this. It's very culturally attuned. It's quite confusing. I think it's this. Jesus is basically saying, imagine you had a servant in our day and age, a workman in the house. And you've put them for two hours to fix your shower. And after an hour, they come in and say, I fixed your shower. It's only been an hour. Isn't that amazing? Can I get acknowledgement of that, please? And can you maybe fix me a meal as well? And you go, what? <laughs> no, that's the minimum that I paid you for. As in, that's literally what you were meant to do. I was expecting you to fix the shower. And in fact, because you've only taken it an hour, I've still got you for another hour. I've paid you for two. Can you go and look at the loo? That's what's going on here. Imagine, says Jesus, your hired hand comes in and says, Master, I've done everything that you wanted, exactly what you wanted me to do, that you paid me for. He's not expecting his master to go, goodness me, wow. <laughs> Come and eat at my table. You're amazing. 
Now, it's going to say, OK, well, as my employee, that's what I expected, and that's what I paid you for. Is, is there anything else you can do? If you're finished early, why don't you prepare dinner, help the house, et cetera? And then once you've watched your time, you can, you can go home. That's great. It, it sounds hard and weird, as in we might genuinely give someone in our culture a cup of tea if they've done a good job. That's fine. But the point here is a picture of grace. If someone does what they're responsibly obliged and contracted to do, then they're not worthy, says Jesus, really, of any kind of extra praise, no glory points, no benefit. You've just done what you're meant to do. Your bus doesn't come to you at the end of each week and go, my goodness, you did your whole job this week. <laughs> I mean, wow. I don't know what to say. You stuck to your job description. Goodness, you did all the stuff I'm paying you for. I mean, <laughs> that's incredible. Have a seat at the head table tomorrow. At best, you're going to get, okay, well, fine, see you tomorrow. Because there's more to be done that you haven't done yet. Don't be late. You see? That's the way God views us and our attempts at good works and favors that we attempt to give to God as if they make any difference. You see, we are the servants in the parable. Jesus is the master. And even if I have enough faith to be able to do exactly what the Lord demands, exactly what I was contractually obliged to do for Jesus, Jesus wouldn't turn around and go, well, Sam, that is amazing. I mean, you did the bare minimum of what I've required of you. Goodness me, that's incredible. I'm so glad to have you on my team. I, I owe you eternal life. I'm so grateful. No, 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 no. In the scant few things that I might do moderately well as I attempt to keep the law as a saved person, at best what happens is I would turn around to him and say with my head bowed, giving the trash of my good works to him, spilling out from my hands, oh, Jesus, I deserve no thanks for doing the substandard bare minimum of what the law demands as I've scraped the barrel of my good works, as I attempted merely what I was contractually obliged to do as a normal human, I am an unworthy servant, and at best I have only done my duty. You owe me nothing. Even more so that I'm considering doing all this, starting off in deficit to you before I begin. There's no end to the amount that I have to work off for you, Jesus. In short, no way does anything I do match up to any kind of difference to Jesus' view of me and my eternity with him. It's not about me. It's not about massive, effective faith that begins to puff me up and make me think that I'm great and my law-keeping is somehow impressing God, expecting something from him for the amazing things I do as if he owed me something. No, at best, I'm already giving him what I owe him. And I can never do it enough to pay that off. All Jesus looks at in a true disciple is the tiniest scraps of faith that brings me to my knees in panic and desperation. Enough faith that just about moves my lips in my tears and repentance, saying sorry to Jesus for the, the billionth time and clinging on to him for dear life. And that grows in me a desire to want to love him and love others out of incredible grace. And I do have to work at living as Jesus demands here, but I do so as a saved son of the Father realizing that any good I do is thanks to Jesus and not to me. It's just me giving back to him what, what I owe him joyfully. That is the way into eternal life. The Pharisees expected praise from God for all the good they did. As if they were doing God a favor, giving him a little more than they needed. They deserved eternal life because they were so good. God turns around and says, that's not worthy of praise, Pharisees. It's at best the least you should be doing, and you're doing it badly, from a position of debt. It's the same with us. When we love God by actually living according to the law, by loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving each other, well, we don't deserve any extra thanks for that. 
It doesn't put us in a position of credit with God such that he suddenly owes us eternity. We are simply doing what is contractually obliged for us as humans and as saved sons of the Father under the law. Starting from a position of deep debt and the disciple recognizes that. Oh, Jesus, help. I'm an unworthy servant. That's the response of the true disciple who understands that eternity is not dependent on our works but now on Jesus. Jesus is as pleased with us on the days we fail miserably and come to him on our knees in repentance and faith as much as he is when we work hard and well at loving him and his people under the law and have good days, but where we still have to fall on our knees in repentance and faith because it just wasn't good enough. That brings us full circle to where we started as we close. For how does Jesus help us if he refuses to weaken the law for us? For even as we get to the end of this passage, the law has not been weakened. It is never weakened. We do need to be loving God with all our bodies, loving each other till it hurts. We don't have a free pass to eternity. The standards of living for Jesus are never lessened. We do need to be non-offending, non-offendable people with each other. That's what it looks like to be a saved person. But we cannot do it perfectly enough to reach eternity on our own. If only we had someone who has done it perfectly who has kept the law perfectly, who has loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, who has loved other people to the end of himself, who has never caused anyone to sin, and who always forgives the repentant sinner. If only we had that person to rely on. And thank God Almighty that we do. For one of the very next five words after this parable, which opens the next section for us, chapter 17, verse 11, on his way to Jerusalem. Not one dot of the law can be lost or changed, says Jesus in chapter 16. And you cannot earn your way to eternity through your good service as my servants. You'll never be able to work off what you owe me in your deficit to me. Even in your best moments, you are unworthy, unable to continue what you need. What you need to do is you put your mustard seed-like flickering faith in me and let me do it for you. Let me keep the law perfectly for you says Jesus. Let me pay the price of your servant deficit that you cannot repay, says Jesus. Let me go to Jerusalem. And that's where we started, wasn't it? Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. That's the context of this passage of impossible law-keeping for our eternity. Jesus is saying all this on his way to the cross, where he's going to die, where on the cross the full weight of the law is brought to bear on his whipped shoulders, where the, the full debt of sin that billions of people owe is brought to bear on his entire body, where the brutal effects of humans not loving God and hating each other is brought to bear on the head of the Son of Man, who came not to be served, but to serve, who came not to strut and preen, but who came to offend no one and bear all the offense of man on the cross who came not to condemn but to be a ransom for many, bringing many sons and daughters to glory and eternal life as he removes our millstones from around our necks and places it on his own. As he takes our mustard seeds of desperate faith and repentance and renders us fit for an eternity as we are covered by his perfect blood. With the only thing on our lips of any worth, the words, help me, Jesus, I am your unworthy servant. Let me pray as we close. Father God, thank you and praise you so much uh, for your goodness to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, your son. Thank you for everything that he has done for us. Father God, help us to be a
people who live constant daily repentant lives to you. Help us to be people who enjoy loving you with everything that we have with our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strength, and to be loving each other to the end of ourselves, loving each other better than we love ourselves, loving each other enough to continuously, um, or always, unendingly forgiving each other in the Lord Jesus Christ as we repent to each other in close family and seek each other's good. Help us be those people, people who show signs of being saved in the Lord Jesus Christ by his incredible grace. And thank you for that. Thank you for our good works. That They will never get us anywhere near where we need to be in order to pay off the deficit that makes us right with you for eternity. Heavenly Father, help us to not be Pharisees, legalists, people who think we're just brilliant. Help us to be people who love doing good because we have been saved by grace, clinging on to the Lord Jesus Christ for everything, for our very next breath, uh, thanking him for the cross, his blood, his body broken, and his uh, resurrection life that proves that we can be with him on repentance and faith as he leads us into eternity after death. Lord, may these be real marks of gospel progress in us as a church family and as we seek to love people and bring people who don't know you into repentance in the Lord Jesus, that they may see that it is not about them, it is all about Lord Jesus and your perfect law-giving that you uh, provided for us such that we may know you. Lord, help us, we pray, as we go into this week. Help us be people who love you, who love each other, and who are resting fully on the Lord Jesus and his grace. We pray these things in his name. Amen.